Texas Business Minds, a presentation of the Texas Business Journals. Brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. In this download, Austin Business Journal Managing Editor Will Anderson invites Eagle Eye Network's President and CEO Dean Draco to share his vision for cloud video surveillance, electric luxury sports cars, and his permanent legacy foundation. All right, Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you being on the Texas Business Minds podcast. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Will. You got it. I think I'll start off just by reading this long list. Jump in if I get uh, it wrong anywhere. But Dean, you're founder and CEO of Eagle Eye Networks here in Austin. You're founder and CEO of Draco Motors. You're founder and CEO of IC Manage. Is that still right? Correct. You're chairman of something I really want to talk about, the Permanent Legacy Foundation. Um, okay. And you're known as a serial entrepreneur, as a founder and uh, former CEO of Barracuda Networks, right? Back in uh, Silicon Valley? Correct. Which of course, IPO'd when you were there. Uh, and I think later, you know, there was an acquisition, um, take it private again. So a, a big company on the West Coast that our listeners there will, will remember. And now you're here in Austin doing what? Most of my time is spent on Brevo and Eagle Eye Networks, which are two companies that are in the physical security space. And then time spent on IC Manage and, and Draco Motors, you know, so there's a lot going on. Keeps me pretty busy. Well, there's a lot going on in Austin these days, so you got to keep up. Sorry, what's Brevo? I wasn't, I, I left that off. Oh, Brevo is a physical access control company. They're the largest cloud access control company in the world. And they provide those key cards that open up the doors when you come into your office. And they operate the world's largest access control system. Okay. Uh, I'm familiar with like HID Global that's done some, that does some access control. So similar kind of physical security, but yes. is it cloud you're saying? If it's cloud. Yeah. Based? So Brevo is, uh, is the cloud version of um, HID access control. So, you know, gotcha. rather than having the Windows PC in the basement, you know, kind of the old school way, it's more the salesforce.com methodology of doing it in the cloud. You're all about the cloud. I don't want to overstate it, but that's kind right. of been your uh, your bread and butter for, for a while, especially with Eagle Eye. Can you explain what Eagle Eye does? So Eagle Eye is the cloud version of video surveillance. Traditionally, video surveillance is either done with a DVR, NVR, which is a, a box that gets stuffed in a closet somewhere, or with a whole bunch of Windows compute servers that get stuffed in a rack in the basement. And they record all the cameras to those machines. And what Eagle Eye does is instead of recording everything to the local computer, we record everything to the cloud. So it's kind of like the Gmail version or the salesforce.com version of video surveillance. This has traditionally been really hard because of the amount of bandwidth and storage that yeah. video needs. And so Eagle Eye has really pioneered the solutions to both the bandwidth and the quantity of storage problems over the last 10 years to become the leader, the number one provider of cloud video surveillance in the world. I'm just thinking of like, you know, my favorite hard-boiled crime novels and they like when they're investigating the crime, they only keep the video for 48 hours or whatever, because you got to keep writing over the disc or, or so there is a right. lot of bandwidth issue. Um, but you're saying that you guys have figured that out a little bit by, by putting it in the cloud. Correct. So we we've developed cost-effective storage in the cloud such that our customers can keep the video for 
years if they want to, um, so that they don't have to delete everything all the time, or they can keep it for 30 or 60 days if that's what they're more comfortable with. Yeah. So they tell you, Hey, I need it for 30 days or some people might, might need it for posterity for much longer. So they, they get to decide. Exactly. And they don't have to worry about the disks failing, the computers failing, the problems, you know, it's, it's a true cloud solution. So we worry about all of that for them. Yeah. I'm people basically paying for peace of mind. That's a big piece of cloud moving stuff. Yes. The cloud. I mean, yes. I mean, we're, we're clearing out our offices uh, at ABJ moving to a new location in the server room looks like it hasn't been touched in 20 years, right? It's full of like dust covered old equipment that you're like, do we even use this? I mean, for the most part, <laughs> corporate has moved to like a, a SharePoint or, or you know, a yeah. cloud-based model. And it's like, wh why do we even have this still? And I imagine for something that's kind of sensitive as security footage, the problem just becomes more, yeah, not the problem, but you know, it, it's a- Yeah. It's so more if, yeah. Yeah, so if you look at, you know, an older, older company, they have a lot of servers. In a, in a room and they've slowly been deleting them and moving things to the cloud. And if you look at a new company, they don't have the server room anymore. They just kind of go all cloud all the time. And video surveillance is kind of the last industry to really move to a cloud solution. And that's been for a number of reasons, but that's changing uh, very quickly with the help of Eagle Eye Networks, such that we can move video surveillance to the cloud and you don't need that server room all full of dust like uh, you used to have. So who do you sell to? Of course, there's like retail settings where I imagine surveillance is important just for, for break-ins and things like that, but there's obviously a corporate component, I imagine. So do you sell to all types of customers? Yeah, so so we sell to a full range of, of business customers. So um, small retailers to large chain store operators to large big box stores, to you know, convenience stores, gas stations, all of the folks who have kind of that retail presence. We sell to uh, hotels and uh, apartment buildings and office complexes and office buildings, all, all of those kinds of folks. We sell a lot to government and city. We did a 20,000 camera project with the city of Mexico, um, which wow. saves lives every day. And then we also sell to corporate America, large corporations who especially want to standardize their video surveillance globally. You know, everyone in the Fortune 5000, you know, is using video surveillance to some extent on their corporate facilities. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch of other verticals, schools and education that we also sell into. So it's a, it's a broad smattering. They all want to move their video surveillance, their security to the cloud. You are a serial, and I will say successful entrepreneur, multi-time CEO. Um, we have a lot of listeners and readers of ABJ who might be entrepreneurs or young CEOs. Like, can you give me your value prop or like your pitch to a CEO that you're going to, you know, look to sell to or partner with on Eagle Eye? So you walk into the board meeting room. I mean, is this stuff just kind of sell itself? I mean, the way that we're talking about it, it's like, of course you want it in the cloud. But but how do you convince that high-powered CEO to, to take a look at you guys? Well, you know, it, it's a about total cost of ownership, about reliability, about reduction of headache, about standardization. Okay, it's it's all the traditional benefits of moving to the cloud plus more, right? And so it's not a hard sales pitch once the customer decides they want to move to the cloud. We did 
you know, five years ago, encounter a lot of resistance of moving video surveillance to the cloud. Hmm. And that was because the buyers weren't quite ready for it. They right. were, you know, focused on physical security. And because they were physical security people, they felt they're really good at keeping their server room secure. <laughs> right. Um, and so they were slightly resistant to cloud. But now from high above, you know, the IT department or the CEO, there's generally a mandate to move things to the cloud because they've learned that the total cost of ownership, as well as the quality and reliability of the service is higher. And so there's a push. Um, and so it's not uh, as hard. There's definitely been a change in the last two years. Okay. So. That brings up something that I've heard you talk about before, maybe we could touch on, and that's kind of balance or adaptability being that there's a, you know, there's a product idea, there's something that you, that you believe in at a company, um, but sometimes you have to adapt things from a business perspective to find the right fit, or maybe the market isn't big enough. Can you give us any examples of how Eagle Eye has been adaptable and how you've, you know, brought what you brought to the market, this cloud-based video surveillance, but how have you had to change that to meet the needs of the actual customer on the ground in your uh, yeah. multi-year journey? How many years are you in the company now, sir? Uh, we're, we're getting close to 10 Okay. Um, so 2012, so we're like eight or nine years. Yeah, almost a decade. So certainly there's been some tweaks, I imagine, along the way. Yeah, one of the ones we did early on, back in like maybe 2016, 2017, I don't remember exactly when, but we de developed um, a, a cloud on-prem flex storage solution. Okay. So we would go into some customers and the customer would have good bandwidth at... 10 of their locations, but they'd have two or three locations which were located in rural areas and they really couldn't get a good network connection there. Um, the best they could get was a DSL connection, but they wanted to use our solution and they wanted our solution to be consistent across all of their locations rather than having different solutions. So we had to develop a solution that allowed the video in those cases to actually stay on premise, but to be managed from the cloud. And so then only the, the majority of the video would be stored on premise, but then when they wanted it, they would pull it up into the cloud and it, they didn't really perceive that it was on premise. It was like an extension of our cloud to their premise in many ways. And that was a, a key development, which allowed us to kind of blanket and solve a customer regardless of their, you know, kind of physical bandwidth situation. And that was a key thing that, you know, we learned, you know, somewhat the hard way um, from, you know, trying to do it and encountering problems and then overcoming them with the customer. Yeah. You're all about, this is the cloud. Like this is why it makes sense. You can own this, you know, the whole, the, the whole lifetime, you can explain the cost structure. Um, but then you're like, but we can actually do it not just in the cloud too, or, or kind of, like you said, it's a dual approach because it ultimately yeah. is managed through the cloud. They kind of interface with it like it's in the cloud, but they can't, there's no way they can have the, the internet bandwidth pipeline to, to upload yeah. all of the video. Yeah. We get less of that now as bandwidth is becoming more and more prevalent, sure. which is great, but um, it was a key move to kind of get us off the ground in the early days. Interesting. And you're saying, yeah, less of that now as, as broadband becomes much more, or, you know, yeah. high bandwidth capability, much more widely available. Yeah. Interesting. And then, you know, one of the other kind of key decisions we made early on was we did an open platform, which is very different than most of the competitors in the space. 
So we support thousands and thousands of different brands and manufacturers and models of cameras. Okay. Whereas most of the folks who've done cloud solutions require you to buy their camera. So if you kind of look at the consumer space, which we don't participate in, you kind of have a, a nest or a ring and you yeah. have to buy their camera. Yeah. And so it's much easier to do cloud-based cameras when you control the camera. Sure. It's harder to do it when you don't. But in the commercial space, the desire of the customer to have options on their cameras is much bigger. And so um, we learned that lesson before we started the company. And so that we went that route because we knew that would be more appealing to the commercial customer, even though it's a lot harder to maintain, develop, test, secure, et cetera. Well, right. When you're when the platform changes, I mean, we have the same thing with Awesome Business Journal. Is it going to be on an iPad, on a an iWatch, you know, an Apple Watch? How are they going to be taking this content or this service? Um, you got to test everything. My dad back in the day worked for the University of Texas System, and he brought home a he worked for the Telecampus, and he brought home a Nintendo Wii so that he could open up the browser and see what the Telecampus looked like on the Wii. So it was like a you have to be thinking of everything. Like where where are people yes. going to be? Yeah, taking this down. Yeah. So when you have the open platform, you got to do a lot of testing. So we've invested very heavily in testing. The other place we've invested very heavily in is cybersecurity, which is, you know, with my background in Barracuda, I'm a bit of a cybersecurity expert. I kind of learned that there. And so Eagle Eye has a very strong reputation in the cybersecurity area. We invest very heavily in it. That's very important to the customers. And, you know, there's been a lot of publicity about other companies who maybe haven't made that investment. Sure. You brought up Barracuda, right? So that was a cybersecurity company. You grew it from, from being a founder, being the CEO. Um, like I said, it went public. Um, yep. But I think even more interesting, I mean, we certainly, let's talk about that if you want, but not only jumping from cybersecurity then to Eagle Eye and this cloud-based video, but then you're also the CEO and founder of Draco Motors. I mean, you've kind of jumped around to different areas. And I wonder if you could tell me, you know, as an entrepreneur, what do you think is the most important strength when you might be dealing, you know, there might be stops in your career where you're dealing with a completely different product type or market? Yeah. So, you know, I built a, a number of companies from really the ground floor, right? You know, they were my ideas, my concepts, and, you know, I had a vision of what to build and I felt that customers would, would pay money and, and buy it. And so I kind of have a set of five rules that, okay. you know, kind of guide me a little bit. One of them that's most relevant here is you need to solve a real problem. Okay. People will pay if you solve a problem. Okay. And you got to make sure you're solving a real problem and, and, and that it's going to be useful to them. The second is, is you got to keep your customers happy. Your customers will give you great guidance and great input on how to make your product better, how to make your business better, how to make your service better. Okay. If you keep those customers happy, they'll bring you other customers yeah. and they'll tell you how to make your product better so that you win even more customers. Okay. I am a little bit of an anachronism in, in the world today. I'm the, my third principle is you conserve your cash. Okay. You don't waste cash um, unnecessarily. And so, because every bit of cash you bring in brings dilution and less reward for those who are doing the work. 
And the fourth principle is measure and adapt. So I'm very much a person who likes to measure everything in the organization, measure sales effectiveness, measure results from advertising, measure you know customer stats surveys, measure, 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 and then adapt to fix the things that the measurements show you is wrong. And then the fifth principle, the fifth Draco principle for entrepreneurs is build for success, not an exit. I find too many people are trying to focus on their exit. And what you really need to do is focus on the customer, building a great company, building a great product, and opportunities for exit will present themselves. And you got to think of them as just points along a journey, not the end goal. And you'll do a lot better. So, got it. Yeah, keep your head down and focus on, on building the business as opposed to selling the business or, or Correct. what have you. Yeah. What's Just going off number four there, uh, maybe it was number three, sorry. Uh, what, what is your most important KPI, do you think? Like, what do you look oh, at above all else? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think there is a most important one, in all honesty, yeah. because, you know, there's there's really important ones in sales. There's really important ones in the area of support and service. Um, there's really important ones on the engineering execution. You know, every department, you know, the finance ones are pretty important. <laughs> so they're all pretty good and pretty important. So I, I can't say that there's uh, one. There's, you know, probably a key one in each department. Sure. But you got to be able to take in the different parts of the business as a CEO. I mean, you got to look yeah. at finance metrics and do they make sense for what we're doing on the promotion side or the marketing side? And Correct. is it for, um, you know, new promoter score suffering? Yeah. Yeah. And some of those, some of those KPIs that everyone talks about in the SaaS business are a little gimmicky and people kind of manipulate them. The key one is, uh, you know, you got to keep your customers happy and service them. And so, you know, I've always struggled with, what I call sales service. Okay. If a customer is calling you or a potential customer is calling you, it's important to give that customer great service in this world today. Okay. Because the next competitor of yours is simply a Google search and a phone call away. Yeah. And you know, when I'm buying something, okay. Or I need to buy something. I do a Google search or two or a search on the web using um, DuckDuckGo or whatever your favorite search engine is. And I click through the, you know, the first page or two of stuff. And then I dial like three or four people and he who answers the phone gets my business. Okay. He who has the phone system that says, press one for this, press two for this, press three for this. Our address is our fax number, you know, da, 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 da. And then gives me an operator who I, you know, say, oh, I want to talk to someone in sales. And, oh, they're out to lunch right now. They'll call you back. Okay. I mean, I'm like gone. I'm dialing the next number. And so I think that one of the most important things to um, success in this day and age is a level of customer service on the sales side, because the attention span and the ability of the customer to move his business is very easy in today's world. Yeah. So you're focusing on keeping that retention high, that churn low. So it's an easy funnel to get into, and then it's a hard funnel to get out of from the sales process. Well, that's a different thing. That's, you know, the retention right. is in the support, et cetera. What I'm kind of talking about yeah, here is getting that initial customer. 
Yeah, the, right. fir- the first touch of your company. You want it to yes, be Yes, the first touch. Company. You got it. Yeah. What do you think is the most gimmicky SaaS metric? What would you just throw out or tell CEOs <laughs> to ignore? The most gimmicky SaaS metric. Um, I, you know, the, it depends. I, I wouldn't say that they're gimmicky, okay? I'd say that some people gimmick them, i.e., gotcha. you know, they modify their numbers in order to kind of, you know, drive the SaaS metric. I mean, I think one of the real SaaS metrics is retention, okay? And you can measure retention a number of different ways. There's gross retention, net retention, dollar retention, yada, yada, yada. But I think retention is a key metric that is very valuable, okay? I think um, one that is slightly harder and is often messed with is um, the customer acquisition cost, CAC ratio, right? Or, you know, CAC to total value of customer or whatever. I think there's a lot of games played when people talk about those ratios. When I'm looking at those from SaaS companies, you got to dig to the second layer to understand how they're calculating what's really in it, what's not in it, et cetera, to really understand if it's, if it's real. Yeah, they might have a really rosy um, figure if they're not incorporating all the Facebook posts they do. Or, or uh, can I understand yeah. you could gain the, the 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 marketing? Yeah, stuff? then total value of customer, and you know, it's like okay, that's pretty rosy and optimistic. You know, a whole bunch of things that kind of can come into that equation. What about raising capital? You were you, you've uh, I've heard you extol before about you know bootstrapping and and yeah, basically operating within your means and not taking capital if you don't need it. What can you expand on that? Like, is there a time that you would say it is right to to raise capital? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a time to raise capital, especially when a a market is getting competitive, okay? And your competitors have raised significant amounts of capital. You kind of have no choice if you want to compete. Otherwise, you can become the the Betamax to VHS. Um, I wonder if anyone remembers that reference. Uh, I think some some will, yeah. Okay. Um, But, you know, in general, um, you know, I've done a lot of bootstrap companies um, and I have found them to be um, very rewarding because the buck stops at me. Okay. I don't have anyone to hide behind. I can't say, oh, the board said we should do X. Okay. Um, You know, I don't have any excuse for not delivering the goods because it's me, me, and me. Um, Or it's the management team. And when you're kind of bootstrapped, the management team takes a lot more ownership of the execution, which I believe is a great thing. Not to say that, you know, great companies, I mean, most of the great companies who've, you know, knocked it out of the park have all been, you know, successfully funded and raised a lot of funding. And those entrepreneurs were extremely motivated as were their management teams. But there's also a lot of cases where, you know, money's raised and it doesn't always turn out so well. So, I think it's a great point. Not just the financial consideration of, you know, diluting your, your uh, ownership, you know, changing up your cap table, but there's psychological uh, considerations to take into account too, as far as, yeah, the, the buy-in and, and the motivation of the management team and the, the yeah, psychological ownership, not just financial. Yeah, ownership. exactly. It's like, you know, it's us. There's nobody else to blame. There's nobody else to, to look for and, you know, kind of we're working for ourselves, not for anybody else kind of thing. Well, you've got a lot of business financial acumen. I mean, we're talking about a lot of sales stuff here, but you have a very interesting product focus too. And I think that's a, 
an app time to switch to Draco Motors, um, which is an electric vehicle company, right? Correct. Yes. Are you guys high producing? End. Yeah, exactly. Very high end, nice cars. Um, and they're, uh, can you buy a Draco Motors car right now? Yes, you can purchase a Draco Motor vehicle today. Um, they're a bit pricey, and you know we're producing um, around twenty of them. Uh, so very limited production uh, for those folks who want to really experience a four motor kind of torque vectoring um, drive, which feels and drives them phenomenally better than a um, you know a traditional kind of uh, vehicle. It's got yeah, it's got performance in mind. Right. It's performance and safety handling. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the level of performance and handling you can get both on the road and on the track is significantly better than you can in a, a two or three motor kind of car without the, the full four motor torque vectoring. There's four motors, is that for each uh, wheel? There's one motor for each wheel. Okay. And they are individually controlled by a very sophisticated um, set of software that we've developed at Draco Motors. It's called the Draco Drive OS and controls everything in the car and individually decides how much power each wheel should get on every 10 milliseconds. Holy cow. So it's adjusting as you're going to tell you, you know, you need more on the left rear or yeah. So any slip in a wheel or, you know, you start to turn around a corner, it's going to apply more torque, more power to the outside wheels to help you turn. And so all kinds of things to help you um, drive the car even better. And you're saying you're producing 20? Is that a year or is that like total? For the Draco GTE, which is the model that we've announced, it's a production of 20 units total. Okay. What do they sell for? The starting price is 1.2 million. Okay. So yeah, it, it starts at 1.2 million. So it's a, yeah. a certain uh, market segment you're going for. How did you get involved in car production? I think you worked at Ford at one point. Is that right? Like a summer job? I grew up in Detroit okay. and um, I did work for both General Motors and Ford when I was in high school and university and summers and other times kind of grew up in the in the car industry, which is, you really have no choice in, in Detroit. Right. But the real drive for this was the development of the software. The concept that we had was the ability to individually control each wheel is a game-changing kind of phenomenon for vehicles. And so we wanted to start working on the software for that, mm-hmm. right? Because the software for that is really hard. I mean, we have spent countless, countless years tuning the algorithms on tracks and on roads and on ice and on water and all these different conditions to basically develop the perfect algorithm to do the safest and yet highest performance kind of thing in all of these different conditions. And so we wanted to start working on that. But in order to do that, we kind of had to have a platform to actually test. So we had to build cars to do that. And then kind of one thing led to another and, and, you know, there was interest in the cars. And so we started moving to produce some of them. Interesting. So you started from the software side and then you needed the hardware to try it out on and you figured you'd build your electric car. Exactly. Did you approach it from, was it originally thinking that you might sell that software? I mean, it started in the software idea and then you thought someone might be interested in it or, and then you happy. Yeah. We still believe that there may be interest in the, in the software solutions. 
for Draco Drive OS. And we're we're in discussions with folks all the time about it. Um, but you know, it's a complicated kind of uh, environment, both market and technology wise. So there's always that option. We felt that the software and technology would be valuable down the road. And it was also a great kind of, you know, technically challenging project, which I believe will become dominant in the long run. I believe that the cars, electric cars, electric vehicles will separate to some degree into two categories. One category being kind of the hey, I need inexpensive transportation to get me between two places. And that'll be like a one motor kind of vehicle. And then the higher end market, sports cars, luxury cars will want the safety and performance of a four motor solution. Mm -hmm. And so I think the market will bifurcate into those two places. And there'll probably be some stuff in the middle as well. But over time, I think you're going to find that the, the, the higher end segment goes to a four motor solution. Interesting. And we, I mean, I think we, would you say we have a similar bifurcation in, you know, combustion engine where it's, you know, the Toyota Camry and, and I drove, I drive a Focus, I nothing wrong with the, with the value segment, but then there's a jump to, you know, all wheel drive, bells and whip it. Like, is it similar or does it, is it there, is. Is there it a bigger is. divergent in electric vehicles? Cause there's so much technology in them. Yeah. I think that in the end you'll see the same, it, it is in, in the combustion engine sector, kind of a similar kind of segmentation, right? You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, all the airbags and the safety and the crash test and all of the safety factors in the higher end cars as a selling point. But then there's also performance and handling and, you know, reliability and all these things. And, the, you know, the value segment talks about all those things, but doesn't charge and doesn't deliver nearly as much because people are focused on value. And so I think you'll, you know, see a similar partition in the electric vehicles. Dean Draco joining Austin Business Journal Managing Editor Will Anderson. In our next segment, Draco reveals the biggest change in Austin over the past decade. When Texas Business Minds continues. This summer, Texas Mutual Insurance Company sent $330 million in dividends to policyholders across the state. It's our way of rewarding resilient businesses who never wavered in their commitment to working safe. More at TexasMutual.com. Continuing our conversation on Texas Business Minds, as Austin Business Journal Managing Editor Will Anderson welcomes visionary entrepreneur Dean Draco. Now, you're running an electrical vehicle company. Are there operations here in Austin or is that mostly still in California? It's mixed. We have operations in both. Now, there's another guy named Elon Musk who's got an electric vehicle company. Have you have you met Elon? Have you talked to him? I know he's spending some time in Austin these days. I met Elon a long time ago at SpaceX, but uh, have not met Elon in Austin. But, you know, I kind of always feel like, you know, people follow me wherever I go. So, you know, it's not surprising that <laughs> folks are following me out to Austin. Did you, uh, did you have a, a, any interest in commercial space technology? Were you, were you, uh, were you working on No, it was, it? it was just, uh, I had an opportunity to go down there and get a tour of SpaceX and uh, meet Elon and, and took it. SpaceX and Tesla have been amazing executions, you know, really great things done by both companies. Oh yeah, and we talk about that um, the entry into the lower level, right? And they've done that with the the Model Three, and it's kind of well. I mean, we see 
so many uh, legacy giant car companies going back to Ford, you know, your roots in Detroit, GM that are pushing really hard into electric vehicles now. And it, it, it's a very interesting uh, market that's taking shape. And, and Tesla has yep. played a big part in that. No, no one can deny it. When we get Elon on the podcast, we'll, we'll ask him about. Uh, well, when I bump into him in Austin, here. I'll ask him for you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Let's talk a little about that, about Austin. And when did you relocate here? When, when did you come to Austin? I came to Austin, I think it was uh, around 2012 or 13. Okay, don't exactly the remember starting, off the top of my head. Yeah, but around Eagle Eye time, like you- When I, I launched Eagle Eye basically in Austin and you know, Austin seemed to me like the, the right place to, to do my next venture. The previous ventures had all been done in Silicon Valley, which is amazing and great for raising capital and great talent. But, you know, Austin was up and coming and I felt that there was um, a great opportunity there as well. And the talent base in Austin was building and growing and it looked like I could tap into a nice talent base there. That was great. And I felt there was also a lot of people who in Austin wanted to get into tech who could make the transition. And it's, you know, it's more affordable for the people who live here, or at least it was. <laughs> um, and so that helped with the, the startup expenses when you're trying to do the bootstrap, you know, you can attract personnel and do it. Um, so that it was, you know, a lot of great things. And the entrepreneurial community here, um, even with Capital Factory and, you know, some of the kind of community-based things um, struck me as being very powerful. So um, decided to do the Eagle Eye founding and launch um, out of Austin. And you've been able to scale it, grow it here. How many employees roughly do you, do you have at Eagle Eye? Oh, I think we're uh, over 300 employees globally now. We have offices in uh, Amsterdam, Tokyo, and um, soon in um, India. We are global. We do business in six or seven different currencies. We operate data centers in 11 uh, locations across the globe. You know, um, we've won Fortune uh, 500 companies, but we were ranked 187 on the 2020 Deloitte Fast 500 list. We were number two in Austin and we were number one in video surveillance in the United States uh, two years in a row. So we're adding jobs every day. So there's a lot going on uh, here in Austin all the time. I mean, we joked about it, but there are so many uh, companies, people moving here, even from within Texas too, right? Austin's always been a magnet. Has it yeah. become harder? I mean, like think about uh, recruiting, right? And we talked about, I mean, Austin was was becoming a big, you know, a bigger city in, in that 2012, 13 time range too. It's always been a boom town. It doubles in population every 20 years or so. But the floodgates are open now and everyone wants to be in Austin. Do you find it harder to recruit and, and, to, and to compete with others? Those Well, I mean, the larger companies have also all, you know, opened up offices here. Apple's always been here, but larger kind of more brand name companies have also moved out here from Silicon Valley in order to, to compete for the talent. So, yeah, so the talent pool has uh, become more competitive in Austin. But Austin has also been a place that people like to relocate to. Yeah. You know, there's there's a huge draw to Austin for folks to move here because of, you know, just so many things that Austin has to offer. And so it's not as bad as 
just competing for the same talent that's kind of stagnant. Sure. You know, regard the talent pool in Austin is is always expanding. And the university, you know, is creating more talent. And so it, it's not as bad as it, it could have been. Sure. How do you think the city has changed, though, you know, in your time here? Oh, man. I mean, it's a very, Austin is a very different place than it used to be, just in the busyness and the 15 cranes downtown building new skyscrapers constantly. You know, what about just, the tech scene? I mean, do you run into the same kind of, like, I know this is a bygone notion and it never really existed, but there was a sense that you could walk into Capital Factory and you'd see that CEO there or, or you know, who's that? And, and it, it was a, more of a clubby atmosphere. Um, again, I don't think that's, that might be a little just nostalgia, rose tinted glasses, but <laughs> does it feel, does, does it still feel like a good place for an entrepreneur? Yeah, no, I think it is. Um, I think there's actually a lot of help to entrepreneurs in Austin. It's a little friendlier between the entrepreneurs in Austin than a lot of places. And so I think there is a little bit, I wouldn't call it clubbiness, but there's a very friendliness kind of um, nature to it that, you know, we're not all competing. We're, you know, trying to help each other to a strong degree, but it is a bigger pool now, right? If I think back, you know, 10 years ago, when I was coming to Austin, it was a lot smaller pool of people in the tech scene. You know, it's probably, I don't know, it's probably doubled in size since, you know, um, I first started working in it back then. And so there's just, there's a lot more going on. What's been your favorite part about living in Austin? Maybe it's the coffee shop or maybe, maybe it's the tech scene, but is there something big or small that has spoken to you and make you feel like a, you know, a long time Austinite? Huh. Um, there's a lot of variety in Austin, right? One of the things that I think has changed significantly in Austin in the 10 years has been the food scene. The food has gotten amazing in the last 10 years in my mind. <laughs> when it was hard to find, you know, there's a handful of great places 10 years ago, and now there's too many. I mean, you can't even keep track of them all. There's so many great places for food. But for sure. I would say... Austin is is eclectic. It's got variety. It's got, you know, something for everyone. It's worldly and yet small. And, you know, it's just it's just a great blend of so many things. Worldly yet small. I, I think that's uh, very appropriate because I think in a way when you come to Austin, I mean, so many people are moving here and it very much is a dynamic city or a city in flux. That's part of its definition. But people tend to feel like you have to adopt a certain mindset when you get here, which is to maybe slow your pace a little bit or just be more willing to help that next person up behind you. Like you said, to be a kind of a supportive environment instead of a cutthroat business environment. I feel, yep. you know, that's kind of, you know, hard to quantify. We'll wrap up here, but I forgot. I did want to ask you about this permanent legacy foundation. The way I read about it, it, you know, its mission is to preserve the important memories and knowledge of any individual family or organization. What is the permanent legacy foundation? What is this thing? Well, the Permanent Legacy Foundation is um, a little bit of a, a, a dream of mine. And the question is, is what happens to all the photos and the documents and the writings that Will Anderson creates? Okay. Some of them are published in the business journal and kind of there for posterity. The majority of them are not. And they will basically disappear. Okay. There's no way that your photo collection on your thumb drives and disk drives is really going to survive. 
You can upload it to Google Photos. You can upload it to wherever. You don't log in for a couple of years. Google or somebody's going to delete it. Yeah. You can post them on Facebook. They eventually disappear. You know, it all just goes away. But as a society, that doesn't have to be the case. We actually have the ability to preserve all of that information for eternity. Okay, there's no technological problem. It's just a, a willpower and a system for doing so. I was going to say it's a so system the, problem. There's no there's no overarching yeah hierarchy of, of who collects that and what you know where would it go. Yeah, so the concept of the Permanent Legacy Foundation is it's an organization whose goal is to preserve digital pictures and elements and photos and documents of anyone who wants them preserved. And it's a mission-based organization that uses an endowment model, same endowment model that Stanford and University of Michigan and you know the major universities use. And those universities and you know, organizations that use an endowment model survive for very long periods of time. Harvard's been around since I think the 1600s or something. And whereas corporations don't survive, okay? Corporations come and go because they have to make money for their shareholders and when they don't, they go. Right. Yeah. Um, but a mission-based organization, which is nonprofit, can actually focus on a mission. And so you get a, a gigabyte of storage for $10, at the Permanent Legacy Foundation. Permanent Legacy Foundation invests that money, uses the interest from it to pay for the storage for your information forever. And then there's a staff there and a mission-based organization that will stick around and make sure all of that, whatever you've uploaded, is preserved forever with your little one-time payment. And it operates as a nonprofit. So the donation to preserve your memories is tax deductible. And then therefore you could upload your family photos or your poems or your writings or your business plans or your family tree and make sure that your children and your children's children and your great, great grandchildren and the world has that forever. Yeah. Would this be like a library of Congress for everyone? Yeah, basically, except the library of Congress doesn't preserve everything anymore. They've run out of space. So they actually throw things away. <laughs> yeah. You gotta be kidding me. No. So, well, well that, the other And they don't that, really do digital. Well, and that's the other point is like for eons, right? We've lost records to history because, uh, you know, the, the stone carving gets rubbed down to nothing or the pave painting gets destroyed by some minor. The photos from your great great grandparents in the war get lost. Yes. Um, but now that everything's digital, I guess the point is we don't have to lose anything. I mean, is that correct? That's it. You don't have to lose everything. But in reality, without the Permanent Legacy Foundation, you are going to lose everything even faster than if you had paper photos. Right. It's right. Easy. And so I'm trying to fix that. I mean, you said it's not a technological issue, but is there enough storage in the cloud to store everyone's photos, even like the 10 photos you take of your pet and only one's good? Um, yeah, pretty much there is. It's yeah. not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> videos get a little harder you know like if you tried to record you know every surveillance video forever you know that camera looking at the empty room of your living room or your front porch you know you you, you could have some problems but for photos not an issue <laughs> i said that in jest but the point is if you want it preserved i guess you you can digitally yeah so for like 
you know, I don't know, depending on how many photos you have, you know, if you have a hundred gigabytes of photos for effectively a thousand dollars, you could have them preserved for eternity at permanent.org. Okay. Well, now. What happens if that, you know, that cloud service, those servers disappear someday? And well, so, so permanent legacy foundation stores the photos on three different systems. Okay. One being Amazon, one being Backblaze, another one being over here. And then if one of those guys goes out of business, Amazon or whatever, they just move it to someplace else, you know? Okay. It's designed to be adaptable to kind of redundant. Yeah. So yeah. the whole problem with preservation of your, your photos, Will, is that there's no one adapting and focused on it. All you need is a team of people that's working full-time to preserve your stuff and it'll be fine. <laughs> but you don't have that team, <laughs> right? That's, you know, the team is you or maybe your wife or, you know, your, whatever, your kids, but it's not their job and it's not their passion. It's not their mission in life. And it's the mission of the Permanent Legacy Foundation to do it. And so they do it and they do it well. Is the foundation based here in Austin? Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I could talk about that all day, but, uh, but yeah, I do you should wanna... talk to, I'll, I, I can connect you with the director if you want to get even more detail. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to nerd out. Um, I'm, I'm a big sci-fi lover and uh, it is a very interesting time we live in. Yeah. We're kind of in like the, the digital industrial revolution. Yeah. Kind yeah. of time frame. You know, it's, it's like topsy turvy. It'll settle out after a while, but we're in the middle of the crazy changes. Oh, agreed. I mean, you think about everyone's thinking about how you take the best photos and develop the best camera, but then no one's thinking about what happens to those photos when you get, yeah, 50 gigs or hundred gigs in. So there's just going to be this endless web of info. Again, I'll, I'll nerd out some other time, but the, the web will be its own almost physical presence that, that will, uh, you know, we'll have to think about how yeah. we can preserve. Well, in the manifesto for the permanent legacy foundation, I wrote a whole section on, you know, right now we store the photos and we make them available on the internet. Okay, but eventually the internet will probably go away and it'll be the mind net or the optic net or the space net or whatever. And the Permanent Legacy Foundation will just adapt and the photos and the images and the documents will just be available on that new network, whatever it is. I think that's really cool. I think we'll, I'll, I'll have to talk to your, yeah, your, your executive director. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about, Dean? Anything we didn't get to or, uh, or, or plugs that you want to put in? You know, I think we, we did pretty good. You know, we covered Eagle Eye. You know, I'm, I'm very proud of Eagle Eye's success this last year. We were over 85% growth in 2020. We were ranked, you know, by Deloitte and Austin really highly. Top line revenue growth, just pure, pure. Yeah. Top. yeah. And we, we raised 40 million in funding from Excel, who is, you know, the top of the top to invest heavily in AI for video surveillance. So I think... I think AI is going to make video surveillance go beyond just safety and security and into kind of helping people make their businesses better, you know, helping people keep their restaurants clean and helping train employees and making sure places open on time and close on time and that, you know, we get better and, and faster and stronger on providing good service to customers. I have an obsession with service, which you've probably gathered from some of my principles. And I think that 
Um, part of the reason I got into the video surveillance business was to use video surveillance to help provide that great service that I think customers want and deserve. It seems like you guys are doing that and are on the cusp of a lot more. So uh, yeah. look forward to learning more about Eagle Eye. But for now, I really appreciate you joining us today, Dean. All right. Well, thank you very much. Great talking to you, Will. And I look forward to catching up with you again. Thanks again to Dean Draco for joining us. And thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Texas Business Journals and brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas.